Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent, as you know, the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, what's left for me to say about this wonderful book that I haven't said already? Let's let Richard Adams take a shot at it. Richard Adams, author of Watership Down, one of the greatest novels in all of literature, said, let me say at once that I think this is a most original and amusing piece of work. A reader is arrested at the outset by a paradoxical witticism, and he goes on being arrested as the story gets into its stride. Ellicott Skullworth and Banneker Bones appear as characters about whom the reader wants to learn more, and soon he begins to be in no doubt about this. That quote is maybe uh, eight, nine years old at this point. It still gives me chills. It's still the most exciting thing ever. Uh, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is available as a paperback and audiobook narrated by David Radke. And the ebook is free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, so after the show or uh, during, go ahead and get your copy downloaded. If you wanted to leave a review, that helps me out. Get you ready for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, which will be out here hopefully in April or May of this year. Uh, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some older stories, including all together now a zombie story, which is a young adult novel. Uh, it's the zombie apocalypse, so prepare for it to be bleak, for it to be violent. On the other hand, there's a lot of humor uh, and a romance, as there would be. Uh, also, all right now, a short zombie story, which is a companion piece. And then if you really like the horror, I've get written The Book of David, which is a five serial uh, horror novel. Uh, it's about an atheist that buys a haunted house that then gives him religious visions involving UFOs. But really, for the middle grade crowd that, that might be uh, watching or viewing or watching or listening to this, um, the language is a little bit rough. It's very much an adult story. But the my favorite character in the story, Miriam Walters, David's wife, is a middle grade author. And we get to see her composing her middle grade series in a haunted house. She is sending out query letters to agents and collecting rejections at the same time there's an invisible monster stalking her from room to room. It's a good time if you're a middle grade re uh, writer and you're listening or watching this, so I assume odds are decent you might be. Uh, you might enjoy this story. The first chapter of the Book of David is free to download as an ebook whenever you're listening to this. Uh, coming up on the podcast slash YouTube show, uh, we've got some wonderful guests planned. We're going to have literary agent Jennifer March Soloway here in uh, May 5th. We'll have uh, author Stephen K. Smith, author Lamar Giles, uh, author Kathy Appelt, and plenty more to come. Jessica Lawson is going to be joining us in April, as is literary agent Holly Root. Uh, we'll also have Daniel Jose Older later in the year, along with my friend Maurice Broadus. It's going to be a wonderful show. I couldn't be more thrilled with it. Keep up with everything going on with the show and with me at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, if you head there, there are right now hundreds of interviews uh, with authors, with literary agents, with publishing professionals that you can read, as well as the back catalog of all previous shows for the Middle Grade Ninja podcast, including an interview and two reviews of books by today's guest, Mr. Tommy Greenwald. Tommy, how are you doing today? Good, Rob. Great to be here. Great to be with you. I am thrilled to have you with us. Uh, I'm always thrilled because every episode of the show has been great so far, and I have no doubt that today is is not oh. going to be the exception. 
The pressure's on. Oh, boy. Well, the pressure is on, but I like this. It's almost like having a miniature writer's conference a couple of times a week, just right here without even having to leave my home, because we're going to pick your brain, and we're going to learn all kinds of stuff about how to write and publish quality middle-grade fiction. Sure. Um, so, Tommy, why don't we start with you telling uh, esteemed audience a little bit about the man, the myth, the legend. Give us kind of an <laughs> overview uh, of your background. Uh, sure. I mean, I, I often start uh, school visits with saying something about being a writer. I, I ask kids if, if, uh, to raise their hands if they want to be a writer. A lot of kids often raise their hands, and sometimes uh, you know, I, I can tell kids want to raise their hand, but they don't. And I tell kids it's never too early to decide to be a writer. Um, you can be in first grade or fourth grade or sixth grade. But on the other hand, it's never too late to decide to be a writer because I'm a good example of someone who hadn't really thought about writing books for children um, until my mid-40s. I was a writer of uh, different kinds of things. I write professionally uh, because I'm an advertising executive. I do commercials for uh, Broadway shows in New York City. I've written a musical. I've written a couple of screenplays that got sniffed around by Hollywood and then uh, ultimately tossed away like so many others. I've written humor pieces for magazines and newspapers, but uh, I had never written a novel and I'd certainly never written a, a children's novel or a middle grade novel until I was in my mid forties. I had kids of my own uh, and I struggled to get them to read. And I kind of looked around for a book that I thought would attract uh, kids like my own kids, reluctant readers, but reluctant readers who are otherwise great kids, funny, smart, entertaining kids, because kids who don't like to read are just as awesome as kids who do like to read. And I couldn't find them. I found a lot of books about uh, children who don't like to read, but they're usually serious books. Uh, they're usually books about kids who are having troubles at home or troubles in school, troubles with a friend, troubles with family. And sometimes a manifestation of those troubles comes out in not wanting to read or not wanting to learn. And these are great books. They usually end happily and with an uplifting story about the, ch the child discovering how reading can, can help and improve their life. And I love those books, but it wasn't really the kind of book I was looking for. And once, once I realized I couldn't find it, I decided to try to write it. And that was, that was how the, my, first, my first book, my first Charlie Joe Jackson book came about through the struggle of getting my own kids, Charlie, Joe, and Jack, to read. And that is, for my money, the definitive book for uh, encouraging children who don't want to read to read. I mean, it's all there in the title, Charlie Joe Jackson's Guide to Not Reading. Yeah. And it is, yeah. I think about that book to this day since I first reviewed it, and I chuckle about it every so often. If I come across <laughs> a passage of my own that's difficult, I think, well, I've already lost the Charlie Joe Jacksons of the world. <laughs> all that's left are the hardcore readers. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, I mean, this is, this, is what, this is the cover of the book. Um, when I first uh, presented this title to the agent that I ultimately signed with, um, not, not this title, but this idea for the book, I thought it was going to be, uh, I kind of designed it originally as a picture book idea called The Boy Who Hated Reading. And it was all about a kid who just was refusing to read no matter what his parents did to try to bribe him or get him to read. And she was the one who told me this would, this is a, a good and funny idea for a book, but I should up it to the middle grade level because that's the age kids are when they really decide whether they're going to read on their own. And now that their parents are going to start reading to them less and less, it's really up to the kid to make that independent choice. Will they 
hold the book themselves and read as opposed to all the other tempting things they could do or will they go off and if they're not going to be read to they leave reading behind so she was the one that that kind of told me there's a there's a niche out there in a marketplace for a, a, a middle grade book of the sort well, obviously this was a smart call because this has spawned <laughs> uh, numerous sequels plus some spin-offs. Yeah. how many sequels are there now there are uh, there's six Charlie Joe Jackson books altogether, um, and there are three spinoffs. Um, there are books that are based on friends of Charlie Joe's. You've got Katie Friedman, who's his best friend, which was the first book I wrote from a girl's point of view. So that was a fun, interesting challenge. There was a there was one of the Charlie Joe's before the Katie Friedman book had excerpts written by or written slash narrated by Katie because Charlie Joe was getting lazy and he wanted Katie to do some of the work for him. Um, and Brilliant so, technique. Just layer she, that right in. <laughs> yeah, I did. She, she, her book is called Katie Friedman Gives Up Texting, and that's a, that's a book about Katie giving up her phone for a week and getting 10 of her friends to give up her phone for a week. That was my cautionary tale about phone addiction because – Again, looking at in my own household for inspiration, I saw my, my three kids were getting more and more addicted to their phones. Not to leave myself out of it, I too have my issues with phone addiction, screen addiction. I think we all do. So that was, that was what the Katie Friedman book. Pete Milano was a friend of his, and he got a book about getting cast in a, a Hollywood movie called uh, Pete Milano's Guide to Becoming a Movie Star. And Jack Strong, takes a stand is a book about his camp friend, Charlie Joe's camp friend, Jack Strong, who is tired of being overscheduled and being shunted from activity to activity by his parents. And he finally gets fed up and goes on strike and refuses to get off his couch. So those were, those were the nine books that kind of make up the, the world of Charlie Joe Jackson. And, um, how, um, well, I've got a bunch of questions about Charlie Joe Jackson. So let's just start there. Yeah. Um, with, uh, well, I guess, first question that comes to mind, how did you initially overcome or did you have to overcome any objections with librarians, teachers, people that you want to be your partners in helping to promote the books who, who might say, well, wait a minute, I guide to not reading. I, I don't want my kids reading that. I, I want them to read more. So obviously you did overcome as, as evidenced by the fact that uh, the, the series had, you've been so prolific and the series has continued to be successful for you. So how were you able to navigate that or was it an issue? It was a little bit of an issue. There was, you know, librarians and, and teachers and people in the, in the kid lit community have by and large have a great sense of humor and they, they kind of know that this was a, a, I was trying to engineer some reverse psychology here by, you know, I, I tell people that the title, I wanted a title that would pass the bookstore test essentially, meaning if I took my kids into a bookstore or a library and they did what they usually did, my own kids or kids like them where they just find an excuse to not want to pick up any book. No, too long. I don't like the cover, the title. If they see a book about how to avoid other books, they might, it might at least stop them in their tracks because it's so odd and unusual. And to get a kid to read a book that promises to teach them how to avoid other books obviously sounds counterproductive, but if the reverse psychology plan works, they read this book and they, realize even possibly without consciously realizing that it's an entertaining novel. It's a story of, with characters and situations and it's got comedy. It's got a little bit of heart. It's got a little bit of 
Um, a slight little message thrown in there, although, gosh, I hope it's not too heavy-handed. And then by the time they finish the book, they've kind of forgotten that they'd originally picked it up as a way to avoid books. Uh, you know, I kind of doubled down on the joke with this, uh, now with 25 exclusive non-reading tips, which are in there, but they're, they're you know, purely tongue-in-cheek. And the goal is to have a kid realize that, wait a second, this was fun and I wouldn't mind reading another book either in the series or like this and most of the, almost all the librarians and teachers i encountered were, were right down with that there was the occasional note i would get or review on goodreads or something that would say i don't understand I, you know why would i pick up a book or why would i encourage my students to read a book about how to avoid books but that those were the outliers by and large the the community was supportive and it was on the heels of the wimpy kid phenomenon too so i think the educational and, and parent community were realizing that there was a way to get these notoriously finicky reluctant readers to pick up a book and if we could find more product that would help them do that it's, it's all to the good Luckily, that I will say I've been lucky in that people who love to read have also gravitated to the series over the years. So I don't, I don't, I want to convey that it's just purely uh, a reluctant reader mission book. It was certainly the original intent was to get those kinds of kids to read. But over time, Charlie Joe himself grew, and he himself did learn actually to enjoy the act of reading on occasion. And you know, by the time the series ended, it was just to me, kind of a good old fashioned middle grade series with characters kids hopefully enjoy and wanted to see um, change and grow over time. It's a bit of a dirty trick, uh, kind of, sort of, as well, because it, it starts off with uh, very short chapters, uh, yeah. lots of illustrations, and then as you go on, it's just like a yeah. snowball rolling down a hill. You, yeah. roll, you you put in a little bit more narration, a little bit more plot complication, and True. we're still laughing at, at Charlie Joe and, and his plans to not read, um, yeah. but yeah. by golly, uh, about midway through, we're, we're reading a book, we're enjoying yeah. the story. I hope so. From your lips to God's ears, as they say. <laughs> that was that was the intent, and there are a lot of jokes about that too. As early tips are, make sure every book you read has short chapters, and if your parents say you don't read, just show them all the ways you do read: menus and video game instructions and these sorts of things. So while the first half of the first book is really all about the act of reading versus not reading. By the time the second book comes along, and definitely by the third book, you've kind of forgotten that original premise and hopefully are now just into these characters. You were working with, I want to make sure I get the illustrator's name right, with uh, J.P. Couvert, correct, yeah. on that one? Yeah, yeah. So with a book like that, um, it's not, yeah. quite, not quite a picture book, but those uh, pictures are absolutely instrumental in telling Very the story. So. And I've, yeah. I've seen you multiple places wearing a T-shirt uh, with the drawing of Charlie <laughs> Joe Jackson on it. So I'm, I'm assuming you're on board with the final product. Um, <laughs> board, yeah. How much uh, influence did you have on those illustrations? How, how uh, closely did you work with J.P. Hubert? Well, it's a it's a good question, and it tends to to the answer tends to surprise people, especially people who who aren't familiar with how it works. Uh, kids, for example, in in 
in the school visits I do, this never fails to amaze kids. Um, because the fact is, I don't really work with the illustrator at all. What happens is the editor, my wonderful editor, Nancy Mercado, who edited the Charlie Joe series, uh, she offered me, I believe, three illustrators to look at and said, these are the, these are the three people I've honed in on. Um, they didn't draw anything for Charlie Joe at that point. She was just showing me their portfolios. And together we picked JP, who was a cartoonist and a, a comic strip creator, I think in Minneapolis. I'm not sure if that's entirely correct, but in the Midwest somewhere. And he'd, he'd done one or two other children's books, but not too many. And we, what, once we selected him to be the illustrator of the books, Nancy's the one who goes off and works with him and picks the moments the, for him to illustrate within the book. They create the character together. She did show me some early renderings of Charlie Joe specifically because we both knew how important that was. And there were a couple of early attempts that I thought, I think, as, as I recall, I think I thought that they were a little young looking. There were, there were things that needed to be tweaked and I participated in those conversations, but only through Nancy who would then relay these notes back to JP. So he and I never worked directly together at all. And that, that's been the case on all, all of my illustrated books. It's always done through the, uh, the editor as a, as a middle person. Um, which at first I was like, is it really? I mean, I think anybody who's new to the business would be surprised by that, any writer. But as- Surprise slash horrified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize that, that um, I didn't realize that it would be that church and state. But as uh, over time, I realized that it, it makes more, it does make the most sense for that, for it to be that way, for the editor to be the gatekeeper of all the creative materials. And we, I help pick the moments that should be illustrated. And then I will see sketches of the illustrations. And all along the way, I'm allowed to kind of participate in the final product of the illustrations as a note giver, not as a, not as a collaborator, really. And it's, it's, worked, it's worked really well by and large. In all fairness, I've, uh, I'm being a little facetious. I work with my cover artist, uh, Stephen Novak, to design yeah. all these wonderful covers. Yeah. Um, I usually start with some kind of concept and, and give him an idea, or yeah. I've worked with my illustrator, Adam Smith, as well. And what I found consistently is if that's what I was good at, I'd be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's usually better for me to just say, well, maybe this, maybe that, and then get out of the way and let them do what they do, because that, that's, that's why they are who they cool. are. I've written one picture book, uh, a book called Hooked, which unfortunately I don't have in front of me, but um, it's a book about a boy ice fishing with his dad. And that was also published by Macmillan about four or so years ago. And that was, that, that was a real eye opener because I wrote the text and said, I had, it started as a short story actually in a, in a magazine called Storyworks that Scholastic puts out. And I took it to Macmillan and I said, I have a great idea for, I think this could be a great picture book. I have this person who illustrated it and uh, for the, for the magazine. And I have a couple of other illustrators and they basically patted me on the head, like a, like a nice little boy and said, oops, I'm sorry. Patted me on the head and said, this is lovely. And we actually are interested in the text, but you just leave the illustrator to us. Um, you go over here and wait, and when we have an illustrator that we think is appropriate, we'll let you know. And Rob, I kid you not, it took three years 
three years between me selling the text of that picture book and then coming back and saying, we've talked to a bunch of people and this is the guy we've settled on, this great illustrator named David McPhail. And so for three years, then, he's just in a state of despair of, oh, oh no, my book's not going to happen after all. There were moments where I totally thought it wasn't going to happen. And I'd heard stories of, of the length of time it takes for a picture book to happen because illustrators have projects backed up and the, the, the kind of putting the puzzle together is apparently a real, a real saga. But I'd heard that it takes a year to, to bring an illustrator on board or a year and a half. So three years, I was, I, I was pretty sure that the book had kind of just fallen by the wayside. Um, so I was thrilled. At least given you some money. Given me a bit of an advance and uh, which was nice, but you know, when you write a picture book, I mean, you write any children's book, actually, you know, you're never really doing it for the money be because you're lucky if money comes your way. But um, the idea that anybody would go into writing books for children for money is comical, of course. But in picture books, it's kind of that times two because you're, it's just a complete crapshoot whether the advances are, are, at least for me, it was, it was low. And so I assume the publisher could have said, if we never find an illustrator for this book, it's not the end of the world. So, but to their credit, they found an illustrator and a great illustrator. I was thrilled with how the book came out. But that was a situation where he just drew the pictures sent them in and the book was put together by the editor. I didn't really have much to do with how the illustrations came out at all. And there are other stories about picture books. I'm, I'm, I have a lucky and a happy story, but I do know some authors who have been unthrilled with how the illustrations ended up working with their original text. So you never, you never know. Um, I've been blessed with, with, great illustrators, I think, in all my series and, and sensitive editors who have found the right people. So it's worked out well for me. But, it, but if you're not a writer illustrator, if you're just a writer, you know that you're putting your illustrations in the hands of, of your editors and your illustrators and ultimately not having that much to do with how they ultimately come out. Makes sense to me. And then yeah. um, now let me ask you this. At, at this point in your career, now that you're the Tommy Greenwald uh, yes. that you <laughs> had several successful yeah, series. Um, you're uh, starring on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. So, yeah, <laughs> pretty much this is, the it. This is the pinnacle, baby. This is it. <laughs> so, at, at this point, do you have a, a little bit more sway than you maybe did early on, or is it about the same? About the same. I mean, I, I, the, the most recent series, illustrated series that I'm working on is this, is this kind of funny sweet zombie series called project Z and I don't really want to call it a zombie series because there's only one zombie in it. Everybody else is a real human person. Um, but again, this was a, this, this heavily, really quite heavily illustrated. Actually, this is, this is a galley, so it's hard to see. Um, there's only a few illustrations in the galley, but the ultimate book is going to be quite heavily illustrated. Um, you can see a couple of illustrations. Um, and, uh, and that's going to be coming out in May? That's coming out in May, yeah. And again, it was, it was I think I was shown one or two illustrators, and, and we picked this guy, Dave, who's done a really nice job. But even though I am the Tommy Greenwald, uh, 
it's still not really a situation where I can dictate the the illustrator. I'm, I'm be curious to know. I'm sure there are there are plenty of writers who do reach the level where they say, "I want this guy to draw the pictures for my books," but I ain't there yet. I don't know if I'll ever get there. We'll see. I don't know. Maybe we'll talk to James Patterson someday, and he'll be like, "No, they won't let me pick." <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. That's possible. You I might heard. say, "You might say I don't want to pick." You know, I leave it to them. And I'm sure he picks apocryphal his... tale that that may or may not be true because you know how these things get passed around. I didn't hear it from yeah. James Patterson himself, but yeah. I did hear once that he was booked at a uh, bookstore in Florida for a signing. And yeah. he showed up and they didn't have his books. He had to go to his car and get boxes out. And I, I'm, this is, I heard this within the last 10 years. So this is post Alex Cross. <laughs> <laughs> that is not good. That is, that, that's, you don't want to, he's the wrong guy to forget, forget the books of. Cause he's, he's an ace. Everybody knows how prolific he is, but he's also incredibly generous with his donations of, of, books to schools and to bookstores and to indie bookstores. So you, we want to stay on James Patterson's good side, I would imagine. And James Patterson, if by any chance you're, you're hearing or watching this and you're saying, well, that's not true. Don't tell me. I'm really clinging <laughs> to that story when I have book signings that go bad. I need to think, oh, even James Patterson put up with this. What's up with this? Is it all clear of the uh, record? <laughs> Yeah. Well, tell us yeah. uh, a little bit about the premise of, of Project Z, because I'm, you, as you know, I'm a huge zombie fan. Uh, yes. Fortunately, I think I've got my zombies mostly behind me, although there might be another zombie story. I mean, we'll see. Uh, yeah. I'm always curious in such a crowded uh, marketplace. How yeah. do you find a new angle on zombies? What's your take on on zombies? That's uh, a good question. I, I've n I'm not a zombie person. I'm not a particularly a, a sci-fi guy or a horror guy I honestly can say I'm I, I don't watch um, Walking Dead yeah, oh, I don't anymore now that uh, Rick <laughs> and Carl are dead <laughs> yeah I do, I do follow the I do follow the the death tally uh, to some degree but I haven't really been an active watcher of the show but I I wanted to write I guess it started with an idea of a of a of a misplaced zombie boy trying to get through um, the typical middle school experience. It started with like, I, I think I, I started with the premise of the ultimate outsider and I just wanted to push the envelope on the outsider a little bit. And um, I came up with a name, Arnold B. Zombie, which was his original name, which has since changed a little bit to Arnold Z. Zombie uh, <laughs> after many discussions with my editors. Uh, and I just had an idea of plopping a 10 or 11 year old zombie down in a typical fourth grade or fifth grade situation and, and see what would happen because I didn't want to follow particularly kind of the zombie tropes and the zombie rules that are out there, which I know exists obviously. And there's a, there's a huge, and I did, I did enough research to know that there is kind of accepted and unaccepted behavioral traits of zombies. I kind of wanted to invent some zombie rules of my own. And I got away with doing that by making the premise that, that the government, the U.S. that takes place slightly in the future. And the U.S. government has invented a race of zombies under the super secret Project Z that they are originally 
training to uh, attack the United States because the powers that be have decided that our country has become so fractured that we need to manufacture a common enemy because the only thing that can bring us back together that can unite the country is having a com a, a threat to us all. And that's what these zombies are supposed to, that's what these zombies are being created to do. Uh, and so this lab has been developed to, to this lab has been established to develop this line of zombies. And some people who work there are disgruntled and, and not happy with this plan. And so they help a group of zombies escape and all are captured except this one little boy who is, makes his way out to the, the road ultimately and is saved by the, this family. I don't want to say too much or get too bogged down, but this family is also connected. The, the mother is connected to the, to the lab too, and she has kind of helped him escape. And so they take him in and try to pass him off as a human boy and kind of train him to, in the ways of, of human of human fourth grade human behavior. And so there's a lot of, there's, there's, there's no real zombie, typical zombie horror in this book. It's much more kind of comical, the ultimate fish out of water story. Uh, but hopefully it's also a little bit heartfelt and a little bit uh, about how people with extreme differences all have much more in common than we might think. And as a result, in this day and age where people are a little bit more suspicious of the other than ever before, uh, that aspect of the story hopefully will resonate with kids, even if they don't necessarily realize it. And also taken straight from the headlines, the idea of our government trying to gin up a terrifying enemy. Not that anyone would ever do that. I'm sure there are terrifying caravans headed toward us right as we speak. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's kind of... Uh, it's kind of the ultimate immigrant story, I guess. Uh, you know, I, 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 the last thing I want to do is be heavy-handed when I dis when I describe what this book is about or in the writing of it, um, because I don't want to be just another guy, you know, writing a metaphor about what's happening in the world today. But at the same time, I wanted to. I think there's a world in which, believe it or not, a fourth grade or a fifth grade community and culture can reflect what's happening in the world, the country at large, in its own, in its own way, a fifth grade class is a microcosm of everything else. So why well, the story not? The uh, coming through you, the artist, right? And you live in the world. You, you can't yeah. help but be a little bit impacted by it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so um, I keep all my, my, you know, moralistic, uh, messaging to a minimum, hopefully, and I keep it uh, with a light touch. But so I guess I can't help myself and stick a little bit in there about what I wish society was like. Um, and so if I can make my fifth grade universe that way, maybe that's my way of addressing it. Well, my hat's off to you, sir. I once started to write a middle grade zombie story, and I yeah. think it was chapter three. They come across uh, an overturned car with two zombies stuck in it, and there's a car seat in the back, the straps of which have been chewed through, and it's bloody and grizzled. I wrote that and was like, 
this is a young adult novel. This is not, this is not middle grade. That's over. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's funny. I, when I first started the zombie book project Z, I thought it was actually going to be a, a chap, like an early reader or a chapter book. I kind of intended it to be even for a slightly younger audience than it ended up being for. Um, that was that a, a conversation with myself and my editor kind of resulted in me aging it back up a little bit to middle grade. But I would say that the the Project Z audience is probably slightly younger middle grade than the Charlie Joe Jackson audience, if I if I had to guess. And maybe Crime Biters sits right in the middle. Let's talk about uh, Crime Biters because Fangs for Everything is newly available. And it is. Uh, viewers and listeners can can get that today. So tell us the premise of Crime Biters. I do. I happen to have a new spanking new uh, paper overboard right here. Crime Biters, I started writing, I guess, 2009, maybe 2015. Um, I, I was wrapping up the, the Charlie Joe series. I'd written uh, one standalone after Charlie Joe called The Real Us, which is a, which is a book that I, I am really quite proud of, this book right here. Um, and, uh, but I, I knew kind of my bread and butter was series writing, and I knew that I wanted to find another realistic fiction topic that I could write about. Because uh, I was always going to be, you know, the zombie book notwithstanding, I've always been a realistic fiction kind of guy. I'm not I don't write distant planets. I don't write books that take place in the future. Um, and write about at that at that and dogs have always been incredibly important to me. There are dogs in the in the Charlie Joe has two dogs. And we adopted this dog named Abby. Um, and we adopted her off the internet, which is always a little risky because you see a picture of a dog and you talk to people about what the dog is like, but but you don't know really what that dog is like until you first get the dog. And when you adopt a dog off the internet, you pick it up at the side of the highway, literally, um, because they're coming from somewhere else. Abby came from Arkansas. We live in Connecticut. And when you when the dog gets off the truck, you take it home and you own the dog. There's no there's no trial period. There's no nothing. And Abby was was awesome right from the start, but she was also a little quirky, a little crazy. And she had this habit of, of sleeping a lot during the day and staying up a lot at night and wanting to go outside at night and wanting to prowl the neighborhood at night and wanting to play with our other dog. And that, um, as I tell kids in school visits, you, you never know where your next idea is going to come from. You can sit down at a computer with the express purpose of coming up with five ideas for a story and, and fail miserably. And then you can be, it can be in the middle of the night and your dog can be driving your, you crazy and an idea pops into your head. And that's kind of what happened with Crime Biters. I had an idea of a, of a boy adopting a dog much like abby and this boy already has a has a hankering for vampires and a hankering for old cop shows crime shows on tv and through the combination of his imagination his obsessions and the quirky behavior of this dog he becomes convinced that she has superpowers and he ultimately forms a gang with his friends uh, uh, and abby the dog and they're called crime biters and they solve crimes and ferret out bad guys in their neighborhood. So there's some action, adventure, and a little bit of mystery in it. But again, that's kind of a device and a vehicle for me to 
tell more stories about kids and their relationships with each other and their school environment and their parents and their friendships and a, a little bit of a, a, a crush here and there. And this particular series has the added complicating element of a possible superhero crime fighting vampire dog, which, which may or may not be the case. I leave it up to the reader to decide what Abby truly is. Is your dog a vampire? <laughs> she may be. Um, you know what? I doubt it, but she has all the characteristics that led me to believe that someone could think their dog could be a vampire. She's a night dog. She's got long fangs. She has a streak of, of black fur down her back that one could say was cape-like. Uh, and <laughs> it was enough for me to say, I could see how an imaginative boy could think that a dog like Abby could be a superhero crime fighting vampire dog. And that was all I needed to kind of be off and running. Um, his friends, Jimmy's friends, right on cue, one of my dogs is barking. Jimmy's friends in the book think he's crazy and just is, has a wild imagination and they think it's ridiculous that he thinks Abby has these superpowers, but he remains convinced. And so you, you see both sides of the, of the story in these books. And my kids, in, <laughs> again, in the school visit, they want to know. They want to know if Abby is, is really a crime-fighting superhero vampire dog. And I say, it's up to you. It's up to the reader. As much as I, as a writer, can leave up to the reader, I do it. Um, in the Charlie Joe Jackson series, in the earliest books, I never once said his age, and I never once said what grade he was in. I left that up to the reader. Because Extremely frustrating for those of us writing a review, yes. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember that, actually? Oh, yeah. I, I went back there. I'm like, I'm sure he said it. I must have missed it. And I'm, I'm going to leave it out. And I finally just, I think I was ambiguous in, in the start of the review. Hey, boy. Charlie hey, boy. <laughs> Little grayish. Um, yeah, I don't even remember if I said he was in middle school or elementary school. I should check. But but I I would do things where I would, a class would have just read the, one of the Charlie Joe books, probably one of the early ones. And I would say, how old is Charlie Joe? And I'd cure 11, 9, 13, what grade is he in? 4th, 7th. And I, th I think that's great. I think if kids, you know, their imaginations allow them to come up with these answers and they, and they place these characters in these situations that work for them as the reader, then fantastic. It, 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 all of the above can be correct. So Does that I, broaden I, the uh, appeal of the story as well by, by not assigning a specific age? It might, although... I think the, the style of the writing and the illustrations will ultimately make a 10 year old pick it up and a 14 year old probably not pick it up. But I, th I think it can, I think it can help a, a little bit widen the range for, for kids who, you know, if they saw that if they're in fifth grade and they see that the kids in fourth grade, that might be an immediate automatic no. And so if you leave that out, it's much. It's more plausible that he can be in sixth grade or seventh grade, and the language that I that I kind of give these kids, I think, the goal is to make it wide enough so that a fourth grader can think he's my age, and a sixth grader could think he's my age, um, and hopefully, hopefully that works. 
I think I thought he was 35, which was very exciting for me when I when I read it. <laughs> He's my age. <laughs> wow. Yes. <laughs> I identify with his issues. He's in the extended middle school plan. I, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, crime biters in a situation like that, um, yeah. where obviously the the not the star of the show, but the one of the most interesting things is Abby, the the superhero vampire dog. Uh, yeah. But Jimmy is the protagonist. How do you balance that and make sure that we're centered on our protagonist story without him being upstaged by the dog on the cover? Oh, or do you worry about it for a sec? Rob, ask that last question again. I lost you for a second. Oh, okay. Um, I said it real smart too. Now I'm not going to be able to repeat it that way. Um, I uh, was asking about when you've got a, a situation like that where you've yeah. got the dogs on the cover, the superhero vampire dog, but yeah. the protagonist is the relatable middle grade character, Jimmy. How do you strike a balance between those two and how do you keep the reader invested in both or is it a concern? It is a concern. It's it's mostly a concern. As I was going through the Crime Biter series, the premise book, you know, I, I call the first book in a, every series the premise book because you can spend the first third or so of the book just setting up the premise and then the, the latter part of the book making the story, your first story, uh, kind of lead to obviously ultimately lead to more books in the series. But in the first book, the premise and the story kind of have equal weight. And then by the by the time you're in the second book, you maybe recap the characters a little bit, a few pages, but it's all about the story. So in the first Crime Biters book, it was filled with Abby because the premise is he's trying to adopt a dog and they go meet Abby at the shelter and he becomes convinced that Abby is this quirky superhero crime fighter dog. And ultimately he does make these friendships and forms this gang, but it's a lot about how he adopts Abby and what she means to him and how she gives him confidence. Cause at the beginning of the, of the first book, he's somewhat of a lonely kid. He has one friend, but it's, it's about this boy and this dog kind of helping each other. But then by the time in the second book and then the third and the fourth book, you, you know, you don't have to set up the premise so much anymore. And there's so many characters that I've developed in the series that my my brain and my heart leads me to mostly tell stories about these kids. And so it was something that I had to be consciously aware of to make sure I gave Abby, the dog, enough to do and make sure that she felt like an integral part of the story. I had a couple of conversations with my editor along the way about how I was straying too far from the original premise of the, of the series. And she, she said basically what you just said, which is you have a dog on the cover. You have to make sure the dog has enough to do in the story. And so it wasn't, it was more a concern of Jimmy over tending to overshadow Abby than it was Abby tending to overshadow Jimmy. And when I say Jimmy, I don't mean just him. I mean the, the cast of human characters, his good friend, Daisy, his good friend, Irwin, the bully Baxter, who becomes a good friend of theirs. Uh, all of this stuff ultimately is what I'm most interested in. Um, and Abby, I had to make sure Abby didn't just become a device. I had to make sure she she had enough to do. I solved that in the third book by setting the mystery at a at an animal shelter, uh, the animal shelter where where Abby is adopted from. And so I was able to kind of bring bring the story back to the world and the animals and the dogs. 
but it was all it was always a, a concern that i make sure that our our, our cover girl um got her due <laughs> so i have some questions for the shelter you didn't mention this dog sleeps in a coffin you didn't <laughs> Never <laughs> came up during the adoption yeah. process. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Although in the shelter, in the very first book, the dog is sleeping. It's the daytime, of course, but she's sleeping in the in the in the corner in the darkest in a dark cage in the darkest corner of the of the whole shelter. And I don't know if you remember this, but it's it's explained away that she has she's her her eyes don't adjust well to, to light, so she really loves the darkness. And there are there are a bunch of things that I explain in the first in the first Crimebiters book uh, about Abby's vampirical tendencies that kind of they don't go away in the subsequent books. But I don't I'm not as emphatic about proving her her vampire tendencies in those books. She just becomes another member of their gang who who is a crime fighter and who still has an uncanny knack to ferret out and chase down and cap capture bad guys on behalf of this gang of crime biters. But all the explaining about why she's a vampire is really done in the first book. And once I get that premise out of the way, I kind of leave it be and go on to other storytelling. I have lots of questions for you on the, on the back of that. Uh, one thing that, that comes to mind right away is what is it that you think attracts uh, children to crime fighter characters? You know, I'm standing in front of my uh, my collection of Batman toys here. And as I get older, more and more, right. I think if I had billions of dollars, am I really going to spend it all on an awesome car and go out and punch people in the face? I think <laughs> I'd take some trips. I might have a real nice life. I mean, I would definitely have like a year there after my parents got shot as a kid. Inconsolable. Yeah. That would be a bad year. But then, like, three, four years later, I'd be thinking, well, you know, I do have a billion dollars. There are yeah. ways I could cheer myself up. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing, I'm doing quite well, actually. But uh, crime fighters are, are, are uh, crime fighting stories, detective stories for kids yeah. are, are, are pretty common. What is it you think that middle grade uh, readers gravitate toward about crime fighters? Um, I think if there's a mystery involved... They, I never thought of myself as a writer of mysteries, but I'm finding that both with the Crime Butter series and with my, my standalone book, Game Changer, I found that having kids solve crimes and, and, and realize clues and putting a puzzle together to solve something along the way and, and simultaneously with the characters in the book is just a, is just a great way to propel a story forward. So I think there's the, there's the garden variety fascination with bad guys that, that I think people of any age have. Not everybody has it, but many do. I certainly do. I am a fan and have always been a fan of, of true, try, uh, true crime stories, uh, both reading, you know, to, to get really, to, to get morbid for a minute. I remember reading a book about Charlie, Charles Manson when I was, you know, in middle school and just being like sickened and blown away, but also fascinated and captivated by the, the darkest nature of, of humanity and how people can, 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 you know, no human beings can go so dark. So I think there's an element of that, that, in a much, in much gentler way, of course, um, 
if told well, can resonate with, with children. But I also think that um, good fighting and triumphing over evil and the process by which good has to go about solving these mysteries to ultimately triumph over evil is a very satisfying, rewarding, ultimately uplifting answer to the darkest sides of our natures is that there is for every dark person among us, there are many, many noble uh, right seeking people trying to right those wrongs and, and ferret out those bad guys and bring them to justice. And it can, in a weird way, both remind people that not everything is, is a bed of roses in, in life and there are obstacles and there are problems and there, and there are bad people, but by and large, the, the good side and the good nature of humanity will triumph. And, and, but again, that sounds essengy and, and none of that would matter if the yarn isn't good. So you have to, you have to spin a yarn that drops clues along the way, like, like breadcrumbs and, makes kids want to find out what, ha what happens and, and give them just enough information so that, yeah, that, that makes sense. And then tease them with another element to the mystery, a cliffhanger, like we were talking about before with the, the old Batman series. Um, all of these things, I think, combine into kind of this unimpeachable, indestructible form of storytelling that will you know, always be a huge part of both children's and adult popular culture and entertainment makes sense to me it's entirely practical to be looking out for the villains that's one of the chief reasons i write or when i'm not writing middle grade because these yeah. people walk amongst us we, we know they that do. most of us are cool but there's there's a couple of folks you've always got to be watching out for and learning to identify them as, as much as you can that's just a matter of practical survival yeah yeah well, let me uh, ask you, you mentioned that you want to make sure that you go above and beyond and make sure you've got a book good. At what point in the, what, what is your process? How many drafts are you typically going through? And, and at what point do you start to feel, oh, I've got something here? Or is it always kind of a, a question until readers tell you later? Um, it is always a question. I mean, to answer that last question first, yeah, you, ne you never know. You can be out in the world and you're still wondering if anybody will care or if anybody will think it's any good. Uh, for myself, I start with a synopsis. I, I mean, the, the premise and the idea is always good, but unless I map it out in a three-act synopsis, then I will probably... I used to try to write without mapping out a synopsis and I would always get stuck. I would always... Have an interesting idea, start to write. Well, this was very early on when I was just beginning the process. And I, I, I realized pretty quickly that unless I map out some version of a beginning and a middle and an end in a three-act structure, and I know where it's ultimately, hopefully, going to go, even though I know it will change a lot along the way, that gives me the, like, the security to keep going and to kind of fight my way through a first draft. <laughs> So do you like, know your ending going in then? I know a version of the ending that will ultimately mutate to some degree. Sometimes it stays pretty close to what I've originally written up in a synopsis, and sometimes I've gone somewhere far afield. I do, I do like to, to 
after a book is done, I will entertain myself by going back and looking at the synopsis and seeing how far afield I've gone. And sometimes I've gone into a whole other field and sometimes I've stayed pretty close. Uh, but the idea of not knowing where my characters are going has always scared me because it's the, the, any writer looks for any excuse to procrastinate and to stop. At least, at least I certainly do. And so I don't want to have the excuse of not knowing what's going to happen next as a, as a reason to stop. I want to, I want to make sure I eliminate that excuse from my tools of procrastination. And so I will always map out a, a, a three to five page plot summary. And then I wrestle my way through a first draft knowing it could be terrible because I just want to, I just want to spit it out on, on paper. So the first draft for me is the hardest um, because even though I do have a synopsis, the storytelling still has to be developed and creating scenes and propelling the plot along is challenging for me that the, vo the voice that of the characters I write in has always been a more natural process for me and less difficult than making sure I have plots that are surprising and funny and new because there's, you know, you could tell yourself that every plot's been written and you might, and you might not be wrong. So to find new ways to tell new stories is, is always a, a great challenge. And then I will always at least, I'll immediately dive into a second draft before showing it to anybody because the first draft is completely unshowable. And then by the time I've written the, the revision, the, the first revision, um, sometimes I'll start showing it to people at that point, an edit, editor or an agent or a trusted family uh, member who, who reads my stuff sometimes. Do you um, use uh, critique partners still at this point, or is I it? Mostly... Have, I don't do that. I did have a I did have a critique group for, early on, um, and which was very valuable. But now I have, kind of have an unofficial, unofficial brain trust. Um, my one of my kids, uh, my oldest son Charlie, reads everything I write usually pretty early in the process. One and of the like, boys uh, for whom the boy who does not read was named. Yes, <laughs> absolutely, Charlie, Joe, and Jack. And they've all been, they, they've, all been they've all been a little bit more <laughs> willing to read my stuff now than they were at the beginning. Um, but another thing I will do almost always before I show it to anybody is I, I, I write on a computer like most people do. But I honestly, I'm a big believer that something will look different on a page than it will on a screen. So once I've written a second draft that I feel is semi-acceptable, I will print it out and do a, do a whole revision um, on, on a printed manuscript. And I will do it the old-fashioned way by scribbling revisions in the margins and Xing out stuff. And I, I feel like seeing the printed word on the page, just for, for some reason, it feels different. And it feels, you know, I can, I can see something in a printed draft that I'm like, how, how did I think this was good on the screen? And so I will often do that as my, as my third draft and then start to send it out into the world. And do you read it uh, aloud either to yourself or to someone else as well? No, I don't do that. Um, every once in a while I will 
if, it's, if there's a heavy dialogue scene, I might read a couple of passages out loud to myself, but it's just not a process, not a part of the process for me, by and large. When you're uh, doing oh, do that you do, first, do you do uh, that? Um, do you do I've that tried now? it. I actually, the thing about, I love this, uh, this podcast because I love the guests that come on here and I love the information that I get. My least favorite part of the podcast is me. If there was a way to cut me out of it, it would be so much more listenable later. Uh, uh, so I, I won't record myself reading it. Occasionally, I, occasionally I will read it out loud to, uh, to a plant because they need their carbon dioxide. Um, but no, I, I want people to read it far away from me. And when the yeah. uh, audiobook. uh, when it's time for the audiobooks, I, I let the narrator take care of it. Uh, maybe one day before the end, I'll record one of my own audiobooks, but I, I'd hate the thought because then it would be the one audiobook of mine I couldn't listen to. <laughs> so have you had have you had your books done on audio and are uh -huh. you happy are you happy with how they've been read? Oh, I'm thrilled with uh, how they've been read because um, I, I picked the narrator and I worked with him every oh. step of the way and we, we go back and forth and I give him notes actively. Um, I also learned a lot about diplomacy uh, doing that. Fortunately, I've got a little bit of a background uh, in theater, and I was originally a, um, a film student, so I directed movies, and I've worked with actors before. So got it. I have a little bit of sensitivity of, of what not to say. I still yeah. said the wrong thing a couple of times, but better on average. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, that... Uh, that's a thrilling process, especially with like uh, the Banneker Bones audiobook has been yeah. so helpful to me as I'm writing the two sequels so I can go back and I can listen to how my words sound coming out of someone else's mouth. I should. Oh, do OK, that. great. I should do that. I haven't I haven't actually tried that. I have an audio book on a lot of my on a lot of my books, but I haven't done that yet, which is interesting. It's funny. I just was starting to map out the synopsis of my third Project Z book. Um, and I did something which I haven't done really before, which is read back the last third to myself of the second Project Z book. It kind of helped me for, uh, where I think the story should be. A lot of time you compare synopsises of my books along the way. Um, but this is the first time I've actually gone back and read the book before as, as a means to find inspiration for the synopsis for my next book. Makes sense. I wanted to ask you, when you're uh, writing a series, at yeah. what point in the process do you know that this is a premise book for a series versus this is a standalone? Um, that's a good question. When I wrote the first Charlie of Jackson book, since I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, best way I mean, to get it done? Best way, best way to get it done. My, my agent sent it and said, well, I'm going to get a, try to get a two-book contract out of this. And maybe the second book will be a sequel, and maybe it won't. And I said, wow, you know, I said what anybody would say, which is great. You know, do what you have to do. I'd love to get my book published. And they bought it as a, as a, you don't really call it two books a series, but as a book and a sequel. And I didn't really know what, <laughs> what, what, how that was going to work. I hadn't written the first book with a lead into a second story at all. It felt all encompassing to me when I had first written it. So when I found out there was going to be a sequel, I went back and uh, kind of developed almost as if I was writing a new standalone book as opposed to a direct sequel. I mean, it had the characters, 
but Charlie Jackson's guide to extra credit could 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 have been a first book in a series. It wasn't it wasn't relying on anything that had happened in the first book. It was, it's it's the premise of that one is that his grades are terrible and his parents are gonna th are threatening him to send him to this academic summer camp unless he doesn't get his grades up. And so he joins all these extra credit things in school to try to get his grades up. And it was halfway through writing that second book where I think the first, the, the numbers of the first book were promising enough that my publisher, Macmillan, told us that they were gonna want a couple more Charlie Joe Jackson books um, past the second one, a third and a fourth. And they, had, they didn't know at that point how many. And so it was in the middle of writing the second book where I realized I need to figure out a way to make this kind of open-ended so that it could last, which is um, how I kind of came up with the idea of this, he having to go to this camp and the third book then takes place in the camp. Um, and then ultimately, I can't remember four or five books in, I started really struggling with ways to keep these characters fresh because when I first heard that this was going to be a sequel, I devised this whole kind of five book plan where they would, each book would take place in the next grade up. This was how naive I was. And I said, well, this first book could be in sixth grade and then seventh grade. And then ultimately they'll graduate from high school. And again, it was one of those pat, pat me on the head moments. And they're like, Oh, Tommy, you don't know anything. That's not how this works. There they they wouldn't try that today. Not now that you're the Tommy Green. Ah, back then, they can get away with no it. No one's patting this guy on the head anymore. So <laughs> they basically said, "No, no, no. It's they're like cartoon characters. They don't age. They they can age old. You know, they can refer back to something that happened a month ago or last year in school. But essentially, as long as we're telling the story of Charlie Joe Jackson and his friends, they're the same age." Now, the last Charlie Joe Jackson book does take place on the day of his middle school graduation. The whole book takes place on one day. And so at that point, the, the series is ending. I feel like, you know, I can uh, reveal that he's about to graduate from middle school. I can wrap everything up. But this was, you know, this had been nine books at this point and struggling to find ways to, to tell about kids who are the same age for nine books to, to me was a real struggle. Jeff Kenny's on. Now, are you, are you filled with regret and wish that you could left it open for more books yet to come? I don't think so. Um, I was done with it. I think the publisher had, <laughs> had also felt that like enough was enough. It was, it was a nice library of books. You know, Jeff Kenny is writing his 13th and his 14th wimpy kids, you know, God, God, God bless a guy who can keep characters fresh who are essentially the same age for, for that long. It's impressive. And Crime Biters is, is done with the four books. So Crime Biters was slightly different because I did know it was going to be a three-book series kind of right off the bat. So I knew, but they were going to be kind of, since that was kind of a mystery series, it just regenerates storyline through new, new bad guys and new crimes and new ways to solve these mysteries. I didn't have that luxury with Charlie Joe because there was no there was no real mystery or adventure part to it. These were just kids living their lives. It was a little harder to come up with interesting storylines. These guys always 
crime writers always have foils and they have villains. And so it's a, it was a little easier to kind of make that almost an anthology series because each story is its standalone mystery that they have to solve. And are there, um, I, I'm just chuckling because you, you mentioned that Charlie Joe Jackson is, you know, nine books in total. And I'm thinking, yes, for the reluctant reader who started early on, I don't want to read eight books later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've got a whole library of books. You You're were, a reader now, son. I know you don't want to talk about yourself, but you've written series too. And you, so you must kind of find some of the same obstacles I've dealt with. Some of the same challenges. Kind of. With uh, Banneker Bones, the idea was, I call it the end-then story, because there isn't really an ending. I'm working yeah. on the third book now that will resolve quite a bit of things from the second and first book, mm -hmm. uh, but leaving the door open for four, five, and six, or however yeah. many. You know, eventually I'll, I'll expire, and then that that's it. We're done. <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise... Uh, it's, a, it's an open-ended plan, and my, my thought there was, let's make a character that I know I'm always going to be interested in, uh, and, and, and so it's Batman at age 11. There's there's a lot of distinctions, but it's very much, here's our, our crime hero. There can always be another villain. I yeah. will always be able to come up with somebody for Banneker Bones and other Skullworth to fight against. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and ways to raise the ante, and so there the important thing was, in book one, uh, just not to rule out future possibilities. Yep, yep. Uh, whereas with something like the Book of David, which is a, a five-volume serial novel, that is <laughs> one total story. I count it as five books, and, and you would too if you'd written five, written and revised and, and re-revised it. I don't know how I'm many sure. drafts we did of each of those for five books. Um, but it is one <laughs> continuous story, which is why you can also buy the, the mega volume that if and you drop you it, it'll break your foot. map out that story in advance and kind of know where the book breaks would be? Um, I knew the ending. I'm a big fan of doing something I call the, I call it a grocery list. It's basically, okay, well, in order for, I usually have some idea of the ending. It doesn't always happen the way I foresee it. And in that case, uh, the ending changed a little bit dramatically. Mm -hmm. um, not, not that I could talk about it without spoiling. Um, if I, I just wanted to tell you on a free podcast, I wouldn't have written five books. <laughs> but um uh, because I knew the ending, I thought, okay, well, here's some major events that have to come along. And I decided relatively early on that it was going to be five volumes of, of, of serial. So I had to come up with five pretty good cliffhangers or four pretty good cliffhangers uh, to make sure that we, we got you all the way to the fifth book. But also yeah. to make sure that each one was a little bit self-contained. Uh, they're the same characters on the on the same overall arc. Uh, but. They, they have individual uh, arcs and plots to be resolved within each uh, volume of the series. Uh, mm -hmm. And again, chapter one is available to download free as an ebook as you're listening to this. Excellent. So uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, Game Changer. I'm, I'm going to ask you about flying saucers. That's a little bit teaser. Uh, people get concerned at, at this point in the interview. If I haven't asked my flying saucer question, yeah. rest assured, it's okay. coming. But first, let's make them earn it. Let's talk about a sports book because uh, I'm I'm terrible uh, with sports. If there's one thing that, that, that terrifies me, it's the idea of writing a sports novel. In fact, and all together now, I made the character a baseball player just to mm -hmm. force myself to write in a little bit of sports. Plus, I Excellent. figured if he was good with the bat, you got zombies coming at you. Again. You know, I had those bat skills. Yeah. So what is the secret to a good sports book? How do you make sports interesting for readers that maybe don't like sports or for sports fans who don't like readers or reading? Reading, yeah. Um, that's a good question. 
Uh, I have uh, always loved sports. My kids love sports. Um, but that does not mean that um, I, I will say, uh, you know, I've, I'm often asked what I read as a kid. And I did read I did read Matt Christopher books as a kid, which are, um, you know, he's, he was Mike Lupica before Mike Lupica, obviously. He wrote tons of, of sports books. There's still books coming out, I think, under the Matt Christopher line. Um, so I, I have a history of the idea of writing a sport. Um, well, I was writing a batch of those and Crime Biters. But I knew after I'd finished the Crime Biters series that I wanted to write something that had a different tone to it, that was a little bit more serious, a little bit had a little bit of intensity to it. Um, I loved writing, quote-unquote, funny books, humorous books, and I hope they are funny and humorous. But I wanted to challenge myself, get out of my comfort zone a little bit. Um, and again... I, you know, my, my family has always been my inspiration, both human and animal. And as I said, sports were a big part of my life growing up and they were a big part of my kid's life and, and, and going to my kid's sporting events was a big part of parenting for me. And I tell, I tell kids when I talk about Game Changer that I, I have found that sports are the ultimate complicated subject uh, especially football. One of my sons played football. Um, and by that, I mean that every writer looks for a, a subject where there's two sides to the story because it's very, it's a challenging thing to write about a polarizing event or a polarizing subject um, and being balanced about it. And to me, football and youth football and youth sports was the ultimate complicated subject because there are great things and there are things about it. I love the game of football. I love my, watching my son play football, but it, it was an ambivalent. It was a, it was a love that was and is filled with ambivalence because there's so much bad about youth sports and about football and about youth football, combining those two things. There's the obvious, which is the danger just the, the safety of it, the danger of it. Football has action, which is great, but football has danger and safety issues, which is kind of inexcusable. So that was, that was one complicator. Another complicator was the fact that the, the, the bonding and the friendships and the team building, and, and this is not just for sports. This, is, this can be your dance troupe. This can be your acting, your your. your drama department, this can be your cheerleading team, this can be the band you're in. Um, the, the importance of social interaction and bonding and friendships and team building among kids in middle school and elementary school and high school is incredibly important. But there's a, there, that can be poisoned with peer pressure and hazing and, and ways that these teams are built that are completely unhealthy. And I did a lot of research about how um, older kids on sports teams make younger kids do things, some of which are funny and are, are typical, but some of which veer off into the fraternity hazing type world that can be very dangerous and very scary, not just for college kids, but imagine it in high school and in middle school and it does happen. And finally, 
the idea of teaching kids how to win and lose gracefully um, at a young age is a because life is filled with winning and success, and it's important to know how to handle failure. And these are life lessons that you can take with you, hopefully, for a long, long time. But the extent of the emphasis on, on winning versus losing and winning at all costs, that is part of youth sports at an incredibly young age, is um, relentless and dangerous. And it's brought on by the kids themselves, the pressure they put on themselves. It's brought on by their parents who are so intense and so desperate for their kids to succeed and triumph. It's brought on by coaching. It's brought on by the money-making apparatus that is youth sports now, which is such an incredible money suck and parents feel compelled to spend so much money to give their kids the best coaching and the best training and the best this and the best that. It's huge. It's huge business, youth sports now. And so, and, and coaching, while coaching, you know, coaches can be the most influential, positive impact on kids' life. There are many, many instances out there where coaches just go way too far and talk to kids in a, in a way that no other adult would be allowed to talk to children in any other aspect of life. But because it's sports and because it's coaching and because it's football and because it's winning and losing, these adults get away with talking to these kids this way. So... You know, all of these things made me think that it was a ripe topic to, to, to write about, which is why I ended up writing this, this book, Game Changer, the premise of which is a, is a boy who he's, he's, a, he's about to become a freshman in high school. It's the summer before his freshman year, and he's trying out for the high school team, and he's, he's a, a budding superstar player, and he gets terribly injured in this training camp. And he himself spends almost the entire book in a, in a coma in the hospital. And the entire book is about his friends and his family and the community trying to, trying to A, nurse him and encourage him back to health, but also to figure out what exactly happened because you, you think it's a standard football injury at the beginning of the book, but over the course of the book, it becomes clear and clues come out that something else happened there were there was more at play that led to his injury and those elements are where i try to attack some of these complicated subjects that was a long-winded answer but that's essentially it no people that want to write their their own sports no, i feel like a serial killer when i talk about sports in fact i um you know i'm in uh, we, were, we were talking about bad coaches uh, I'm in uh, yeah. Indiana, where Bobby Knight is still considered oh. great by many of my fellow Hoosiers. Oh, what a what a great man! He did what he had to do. Absolutely, <laughs> or so or so I mean, is the popular opinion. Uh, know, Bobby, every, Bob, uh, Bobby Knight coached in a different time, where it, it, things weren't quite talked about the way they are talked about now, and the, some of the things he did in this day and age of social media and Twitter and all this stuff. I think he, he couldn't get away with now. I will say that. I think that's true. Yeah. I, I think he'd have been bounced out year one, year two. Yeah, probably. Certainly the, the, the throat around the kid's neck would have been oh, one of them, right? Maybe it would have saved him from himself. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. That's true. Anyway, so it was it was very exciting writing this book and it's getting some nice responses out there, which I'm which I'm grateful for.
Yeah, I uh, got to a point in my life where I, you know, when I was in high school, uh, there were some middle grade show, but I'll go ahead and say this. There were two things it was not okay to admit to. One was still being a virgin. Uh, and two uh, was not liking sports. You, you had to really? all the go Colts, go horse. We, we, we love our Colts. We love our Pacers. Uh, and it. then by the time I got to college, I was still doing it. And then it, so long as nobody ever asked a follow-up question, I was good. But if somebody did, what do you think of such and such a player? I'd be like, who know? <laughs> uh, what, what's this? Uh, you know, I finally just stopped stop with it. But that's uh, when I think of uh, serial killers, I think back to me talking to people about sports. That must be what that's. But the athletes in school being the kings of the hill that has never changed and that will never change they're still the ones who are looked up to revered put on pedestals can get away with behavior and get a, and, and get excuses for behavior and it's kind of it's kind of fascinating it's a, it's a it's an aspect of human nature that the, the kind of athletic among us are Put in this protected place that is just in, ingrained in our nature and society because as much as life and society and culture has changed over the years that one thing I think if, if you looked at a middle school and high school approach to quote-unquote nerds versus quote-unquote jocks you could go into a school in 1957 1997 and 2017 and the dynamic would essentially be exactly the same it strikes me as odd you would think that would be changing because i was thinking about the uh one of the biggest nerds uh that i knew in high school uh yeah. now owns three or four different businesses yeah. uh, i see him on tv advertising on a regular basis and i think about yeah. all the uh uh the young ladies that that weren't interested in him they were talking <laughs> to the football player that's now working at the factory yeah you you could have got in on the ground floor you would be know, kids, business kids owner never learn. <laughs> kids never learn they're not they're not looking into the future that way <laughs> or mr mr um three business owner because I, I know some very successful girls from uh, high school as well but i played right to the stereotype terrible of me um <laughs> with uh why do you do you have a theory as to why that is as to what the worship is? is it just straight because we still have caveman brains and we want to make sure that we're with the person that can best fend off the the lions think, that come to the edge of the cage i think that's or part cave. of it i i think that's i i do think that's part of it i mean i i've seen studies where you know people you know men usually six one and above are more successful in business than men five nine and below you know it's just like part of it is just pure physicality and 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 people's reactions to each other's physicality that i think you know you hit the nail on the head it's something that's ingrained in the human brain from day one it's like the bigger they are the more protected we feel and and i it's a good question i just think people don't have people people don't have to try as hard to understand the virtue of the athletic as they do to understand the virtue of the artistic you know it's just an it's just an easier thing for people to go oh my god look how fast that person can run or look how high they can jump than to say wow did you hear the way that kid played that bach fugue on the cello that was that was amazing you know it's just it's not something that the 13 14 year old brain can necessarily lock into so whatever impresses a young person the most and the easiest will continue to be the most powerful way to separate 
kids, juveniles in, by status. And the, unfortunately, the brilliant cello player will never quite get the same response from his peers or her peers as the amazing basketball player will. I, I don't see that ever changing. Well, here's hoping that now that we're in the information age. Here's hoping. Um, Here's hoping it could, could get better. And now because I, I went straight to the stereotype, I feel compelled uh, to point out that my cousin, Sabrina Doolin, uh, was a football player uh, professionally. Uh, she's she's the tough one in the family. And now she runs the Indiana Fear Farm, uh, which is one of the biggest, if not the biggest. I, I know she's won a bunch of awards, but one of the biggest um, uh, horror houses uh, that runs uh, every year in October. You can go through her haunted barn. She's got a haunted hayride. She really? used to terrify me as a child. So when people ask me, why do, why do you write scary things? It's a complicated answer. But one reason is because my uh, cousin, who used to come over and, and hide in my closet late at night and whisper while I was yeah. trying to sleep, this is a ghost. Go out to the kitchen. Don't tell anyone I'm back here or I'll kill your brother. You know, wow. really creepy stuff. Yeah. Uh, she used to terrorize me. So I got professionally haunted from a very young age that that has spiraled me off in, into a career as a horror author now. So she's always <laughs> but, been interested in scaring the bejesus out of, out of people. But that one goes against two stereotypes at once. So I wanted to make sure I threw her out there uh, as an example <laughs> because she is a jock who is absolutely a successful business person. And, and of course, she is, is an unstoppable female that uh, I wish I, I had her discipline and her talent. <laughs> All right. Well, people uh, sat through the sports talk, so as promised, let's not let them down. Yeah. Uh, the Tommy Greenwald. Do you yes. have an opinion on flying saucers, and have you seen one? I have not seen a flying saucer. Uh, I, don't have, I don't have a strong opinion on, you mean whether they exist or not? I, what's that? Yes. Yeah. Do, yes. do you think they exist, and do you think they're uh, a concern for practical Americans? <laughs> I I wish I thought they existed because it would show I have a much better expanse of imagination and the possibility of wonder. Um, sadly, I think I'm rooted in a more mundane form of reality that would lead me to believe that flying saucers do not exist. However. I do believe that there is functioning life in this universe in places other than Earth, for sure. They're just not coming here yet. Not yet. Not yet. I'm kind of, I'm kind of have, trying to have it both ways, hedging my bets. But I find it almost impossible to believe that Earth is has the is the only planet or only organism that has solved the issue of life it, there's 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 got to be other examples of it out there somewhere the only way that makes sense to me and i we those who listen to uh tuesday's episode with with uh, daniel kenny i heard us go way into the weeds on this subject where, where i <laughs> admitted that i'm 60 to 70 percent certain that reality might be a computer simulation i don't know that <laughs> i just think it's a distinct possibility and yes, in that situation is. where you're using up all your gigabytes right here uh, simulating Earth, it makes sense that you wouldn't put any life on those other planets and keep them far out yeah. there where we can't venture out. Yeah, yeah. I will say that that if it, my my hunch is that we will be the first to find other life before other life finds us. That, that, that is my guess. 
right, well, now for those people who are, who are frustrated, he's talking to the Tommy Greenwald. Why is he wasting his time with tabloid nonsense? <laughs> okay, well, let's <laughs> let's move on yeah. to talking about writing humor for kids because you are extremely funny. Uh, your books made me howl. Uh, oh, what, thank you. Uh, Thanks. And and it's surprising to me to, to hear you say that you, you you do plan relatively meticulously. You know, you said about a five page outline. Yeah. Um, how do you then go back and find the humor? Is it what strikes you on the day? Is it layering it back in after the fact? Uh, it's a good question. I think the the circumstances within the books and the premises within the books will only get you a quarter to a third of the of the humor that you're looking for. All the rest has to be in the voices of the characters and the way that my narrators are describing the events. Um, and I, I, I cheat a little bit too, um, because I have figured out a way in my Charlie Joe series and my Crime Biter series to have these asides where in the Crime Biter series, they're, these, they're called facts. And I can probably quickly find a, a fact in here. Um, they run throughout the books. Um, fact, when I grow up, I want to live in a bakery. They always have something to do with what's happening in the story. Um, but they're always hopefully little jokes unto themselves. Um, and so I've, to me, I consider that a little bit of a cheat because it's a way for me to make a funny comment without having to rely on it being within a character or within a plot device. It just, it's like, let's take time out for this quick joke. And now back to our regularly scheduled book. So and you're guaranteed, even if you write nothing funny within the chapter itself, you've already got that up front? And I got a couple jokes ready to go. And the voices of my characters, I think Charlie Joe is kind of a wise guy. Jimmy Bishop is, le he's the crime biters guy. Jimmy Bishop is less of a wise guy, but he's making funny observations about the world around him. Uh, for some reason, that that's, that's the part that has always come most naturally to me, uh, writing in, in a wise alecky kind of way that hopefully is, adds, adds a little bit of wit and comic commentary to the situations that are happening. I've definitely written books that are slapsticky and ridiculous. I have uh, one of my Charlie Joe books, Charlie Joe Jackson's Guide to Making Money, is filled with money. He has a dog walking business that goes horribly awry. He throws himself a pseudo bar mitzvah to get gifts, and that goes horribly awry. So, physical situations. Um, there's a there's a fight between Abby the dog and. Daisy's cat Perkins in one of the crime writers books that takes place at a birthday party. Everything's trashed and physical comedy and, and kind of slapstick broader comedy is certainly a part of my books, but it's not, it's not where most of the comedy comes from. Most of the comedy comes from a certain attitude and point of view toward life that, that my characters have that can kind of find the, hopefully find the funny in, in every situation. That makes sense to me. And were you a uh, were you the class clown? Were you a funny kid? <laughs> I probably was the class clash the, the class clown to some extent. I I would often I, I don't have a lot of memories as a kid because I don't remember I, my memory in general is not that great. I I remember having an argument with myself if I was in 
class and a teacher was pontificating and I was negotiating, should I say this thing that I know will make kids laugh, but it will also make my teacher angry and possibly get me in trouble? And that negotiation would 99% of the time would end with me making the comment because the laugh was more important than the possible repercussions. And if, if you grow up always thinking that the laugh is king and getting the laugh is the most important thing, and if, and if something bad can happen to you as a result of that laugh, well then, so be it. Then that's, that's an important trait for someone who wants to write comic novels needs to have. Because the, la the, the laughter and finding the funny, it always has to be king. It's always top, top priority. And right, and 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 teaching how to, you know, there are a lot of classes out there about writing comedy and writing comic television or writing comedy for books or movies. Very, I'm not completely convinced that it's something that can be quote unquote taught because, um, again, I think it's something that's ingrained in you from an early early, early age, earliest consciousness. If the, la if the laugh is important to you, that you're willing to risk everything to get it, um, then it's, it's your top priority, and then, then you're ready to kind of step into the comic ring, so to speak. That makes sense to me. I'm always curious, because I, I, uh, I am a little bit funny, and of course the moment you say that, you stop being funny, that's over now. Um, but Banneker Bones, not me, but Banneker Bones is a funny book. And yeah. when I see that humor, um, I know that part of that is just because it's a it was a survival skill uh, from yeah. the time I was young, because I was not an athlete. I was not um, yeah. physically gifted uh, as a child. And that mm -hmm. was my way of getting the bullies on my side, was that if I get them laughing, nobody, nobody gets too mad at somebody that makes them laugh on a regular Absolutely. basis. Absolutely. Um, I think that's, that's a, another time-honored tradition, speaking of athletes put on a pedestal. Is is learning how to deal with the bullies and learning how to deal with the intimidators, and I've often found that laughter is the best way for, as you said, a, a, a scrawny or a unathletic kid to win over the intimidators. It's also the best way for a short nebbishy guy to get a girl that he thinks is way out of his league to pay attention to him, which worked for me personally, by the way. Oh, uh, me too. Anybody that ever uh, checks out my wife online has one the same question. Why? <laughs> how? <laughs> Why? How? I'm sure laughter had something to do with it. Your ability. 14 years that. later, I'm still making a chuckle. <laughs> it worked out. Do not underestimate the power of making somebody laugh. It is, it is, it is one of, this was one of uh, people's most appreciated traits, and it's what people so appreciate in others. If they can, if if they feel that someone makes them laugh, they will forgive a lot of other flaws or faults they might have. And you have, are you a are you a performer? I know you. We get to talk a little bit about Broadway now. I, I wanted to make sure we I didn't fail to yeah. bring this up because you have written 
uh, John and Jen, a musical that has, uh, is it still uh, playing? I know it was re revived yes, recently. It, well, the, the, the original off-Broadway run was in 1995. So more than, more, than 20, more than 20 years ago, obviously, almost 25 years ago. Um, but it still does get done. It gets done around the country pretty regularly. It gets done internationally to some degree. It, did have, it had a revival in New York City a couple of years ago. Um, and I was never an actor. Um, I've never been before the cameras or on stage, but um, I work in the theater business. I do I do advertising for Broadway shows, almost exclusively Broadway shows, which is very fun and very um, entertaining. It's also very stressful because I don't know how much you know about Broadway or your or your fans will know about Broadway, but Broadway is a tough business to make it in. Three three. Three quarters of all shows fail and, and lose their money. So when you have a product who's long, who has long odds of success, it can get pretty stressful and the producers can get pretty stressful. But when you have a show that hits and is, is a, a, a incredibly successful creative piece and is successful commercially, that's the greatest thing in the world. But a lot of times we're trying to sell shows that people don't necessarily want to see, and that can be frustrating and challenging. So how, a bunch of questions on the, on the back of that. People don't know this about me, but I am a, a, a huge Broadway fan. Um, if, nice. if I could be anything other than a writer, it would be a performer and not like a stoic uh, Hoosier that maybe would sing in Oklahoma if it was absolutely required. No, cover <laughs> me in glitter. I want to do Starlight Express, put on some roller skates. Let's do awesome. this. That's in my heart, but the body will not allow. I do not have the talent. Anytime <laughs> I've sung, and now my, my, my son, who I've been singing to since he was a baby, he's now uh, five. He, he's asking me politely, Daddy, can we just listen to the computer sing the song? <laughs> fair, fair enough. So it's just, it's not in the cards for me. It's, it's fine. I'm having a nice life. Um, but uh, how does writing a book differ from writing a musical? And also, mm -hmm. how does that, well, you know, let me start with that and I'll ask you my second question after. Um, it's a good question. Since I haven't written a musical in a long time, um, I, I, it's hard for me to say craft to craft. But the one thing I will say is that uh, creating a piece of theater, especially musical theater, is the most collaborative kind of artwork uh, creation, collaboration there is. You're not only writing with the, 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 the in my case, I wrote the book and the lyrics and uh, my good friend, Andrew Lippa, was the composer of the music for John and Jen. And that's the initial collaboration. And then you go out and you go to a director and you collaborate with them about how to shape the material. And then the director brings in designers and the whole physical aspect of the show is created. And then you get the actors and every step of the way you're adding people to the collaborative process. And it's a social collaborative event. Um, whereas the process of writing essentially is a one of isolation, as we all know, you know, I know, people who are watching this and, and our writers know, it's, it's basically between you and your computer or you and your pad and pen, if you are still a romantic old fashioned writer that way. It's not something that is collaborative until you feel like the work is, if not done, done enough to show to the world. Um, so you're not bouncing, you're not bouncing your work off 
your partner all along the way. Um, and I, even though I haven't written a show in 20 some odd years, um, because I really kind of, after that show was written, I focused on my career and other things I was working on. I can still feel, and I still miss that act of collaboration. And it's, it's the one, it's the as rewarding and wonderful as writing novels has been, writing children's novels has been, the one thing it hasn't given me is that beautiful act of collaboration. Because even if you're collaborating with your editor, it's emails going back and forth at a glacial pace and an editor's note coming in. It's not a day after day sitting in the same room, banging out the material kind of collaboration that the theater is. And it's that is something that, that if I ever get to write another show, I will be thrilled to get back to that collaborative process. And then, um, oh, I'm just, I'm, I'm now caught up in the dream of how wonderful that must have been working back and forth and, and writing a musical. <laughs> it is, it's kind of old fashioned and you, you, there's movies about, you know, great collaborative teams and there's a lot of great show business movies like the bandwagon where you see them hammering out a show. You know, we walk into your room and your partner's on the piano and you're sitting at a desk and you're throwing bat and stuff back and forth in real time. It's really, it's exhilarating. It's one of the, uh, one of those strange moments we'll say in, in my marriage is um, my wife did not know how much I loved musicals until we took a trip to Las Vegas. She said, oh, look at all these wonderful shows we can go see. I said, Phantom, we're going to see Phantom. She said, well, oh, okay, if you, if you want to see that. And she sat there kind of like this. Hey, they, you know, the dancing is nice. They're doing a, a lot of great stuff with the special effects. And she looks over at me and I'm just bawling all over myself. The Phantom <laughs> is so misunderstood. Why won't Christine take this chance with him? How was the Phantom in, in Vegas? Because it's very different from how it was on Broadway. I know that. It was. Um, in some ways better. Um, in some ways less good. The uh, costumes were certainly a little bit more risque and showgirl style for I'm you know sure. for a Vegas show. I'm but sure. the uh, special effects were a bit more than they could pull off uh, at the Marat Theater here in Indianapolis. Yeah, uh, and so there's somebody that won't be sponsoring. <laughs> are you? Are you? Are you in Indianapolis? I am. So you see, you see shows that you know Broadway shows that come through on tour, right? As often as I can, absolutely. What have you have you seen anything lately that you've really liked? Uh, since the birth of my son, um, I have not seen. So for about five years now, I have not uh, gotten to see a, a, a good show. Uh, so uh, something that needs to get back on there. Plus. Um, but, yeah. uh, but I have seen uh, both Carl Anderson and Ted Neely perform Jesus Christ Superstar Ooh. separately and once together. And oh, really? Just my little heart. Oh, yes. What did you think of the Jesus Christ Superstar NBC live broadcast? You must have watched that, right? Um, I thought John Legend did a wonderful job as Jesus. I wasn't crazy about the lack, really, of much of a, of a stage. I thought they took a yeah. lot of departures on the songs that I wasn't crazy about. And the yeah. Judas didn't do it for me. And for, and for me, that musical is, is you know, Jesus is in, is in the title, but Judas is the star. And yeah, that's, that's what I'm looking for. A lot of people loved him. You didn't love him? I didn't. 
but you know, we're we're talking to a guy who occasionally watches stuff on TV, not you know, great theater <laughs> critic who knows things. <laughs> he was just he was just in the in the Rent live too. The same same guy. I don't know if you saw that, but the guy who played Judas was in that. Ah, I haven't seen Rent live yet. It's it's on my list. Um, well, question uh, I wanted to ask you specifically because you're working in advertising. Yeah. How does that translate to help you marketing your books? What uh, what tips are you able to learn on the Broadway side that you bring over to the publishing side? Well, that's a good question. Um, well, the advent of social media is huge in both places, as you yourself know, who, who have brilliantly branded your website and, and made it an essential part of the middle grade writing community. Mazel tov to that, by the way. Well, thank you. Um, and in my in my day job, social media, too, uh, has become, you know, an essential part of branding any Broadway show. Uh, it has to have a pretty significant, not, not just paid advertising uh, on places like the New York Times website or Broadway websites, but every every show has to have a significant social profile uh, on and create content for their social profiles, their websites, their, their Facebook feeds and their Twitter feeds and Instagram. And I think authors, some, some cotton to it better than others, but every author realizes that if you can master the, that frontier and, and, and create a social footprint for yourself, um, it can really help you get your get the word out to your to your either your readers directly or to teachers and parents and educators and librarians i myself have a have a kind of ambivalence about that i do i i you know if i have something to say about my books i will usually say it on on facebook and twitter like if there's a good piece of news um, but i'm not a natural drum beater in that regard. So I won't kind of, I won't relentlessly stay in a, in a Twitter conversation. I won't spend an enormous amount of time trying to build up my social media profile through um, community building and posting and tweeting and stuff. Um, partly I tell myself it's because I don't have a lot of time to do it. But the, the fact of the matter is I, I could I could make time to do it if I made it a priority. Um, and I, I, it's, it's entirely possible that even though I am the Tommy Greenwald, I'd be the, 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 the Tommy Greenwald if I was a little bit more aggressive about my social media marketing. Because I, I think that's really the only way a writer can market their own books. And most writers are... are if not solely responsible for marketing their own books, then responsible for the lion's share of it. Because the truth is publishers have limited marketing budgets, limited press budgets. They do what they can. But if you're not one of their superstar authors, they're not going to spend an enormous amount of money or, or time to try to promote you and to try to get your stuff up out there. It really is up to the writer to do that legwork. So I am aware of that, and I try to maintain at least some social media presence. And I also try to do school visits when I can, and I try to um, I, I run around the country sometimes um, at the behest of my publishers and or at the behest of 
Scholastic is is my is my trade publisher for Crime Biters and for my Project Z series coming up. But I also have worked with Scholastic Book Fairs quite a bit, and they've been a fantastic advocate for me and my books. And they will send me out on school visits, and I always say yes because I think it would be idiotic not to. Um, they it's not, those aren't paid gigs, but they pay the expenses and it's incredibly important for me to have scholastic book fairs out there helping me build my brands. So, um, that's a relationship that's been very helpful to me and, um, helpful to my brand, I think to a certain extent. Um, but what really exists in both Broadway and children's literature and many, many other forms of popular culture is the fact that as much as you can promote your books or advertise your books or talk up your books or post about your books, the, ultimately it will be the consumer that decides whether you live or die and it will be the word of mouth and it will be grassroots organic building from the ground up, which starts with the viewer on Broadway. It starts with the reader for an adult novel. It starts with the child in a fifth grade classroom for a children's book author. If that kid reads a book and says to his neighbor at the next, next, next desk, I just read this great book. You got to read it. Then you're off and running because as much as anybody, any one person can do, it's a, it's the word of mouth and it's the product itself and it's the consumer themselves that are the ultimate decider. And it's that way in, as I said, in children's literature and on Broadway and every other popular cultural place in between. So on that logic, then how much time in your opinion, should authors be spending ensuring their book is the absolute kind of book that would be shared, that people would be excited about versus talking about it after the fact? And how do you divide up your time between the two? Um, it's a good question. I've heard a lot of agents and editors say the right thing, which is don't try to write to trends. You know, Write what you want to write, write what you believe in, and the rest will take care of itself. And I think that's good advice to give. And I think that's what they should be saying. Um, but whether I think that's completely true or not, I'm not sure. I think it's smart. Just because you think it might sell or be popular. But if you're keeping an eye on what's out there and giving the lag time, uh, knowing that the lag time will be anywhere from one to three years before anything you're writing will be seen by the public anyway. I have no, I, you know, I, when I started my Crime Biter series, I actually, the first thing that made me think about that series was my first approach to it was going to be that it was going to be a, a, a send up or a satire of all the popular aspects of children's books. I was going to have a dog in it. I was going to have a, a vampire theme line. I don't know if you read the first Crime Biter's book, but he has this blotch on his face for much of the first part of the book. It's like this nervous, this nervous um, 
kind of birthmarky type blotch that ultimately goes away. That was kind of, that was kind of an inside joke because Wonder was popular at that point. I was kind of throwing everything in as an inside joke. And at one point I said to my editor, everybody's gonna get that this is that I'm kind of satirizing everything that's popular in children's literature. And she was like, No, that's ridiculous. No one's gonna get it. Just write us <laughs> just, just write us a good story. And I was like, Oh, okay. But I was keeping an eye on what I thought was trending in children's literature. And I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with keeping an eye on what, what's trending in children's literature. And if there's a way to marry the story you want to tell with things that you might think will resonate with readers, do it. I do it. Um, why would you not want to know what your potential audience is interested in reading? Why would you not? And I think it's great to say, write what you want and the rest will figure itself out. But nobody works in a vacuum. It's not entirely practical to think that, oh, I'm interested in carbon engines from the 1400s, so I'm going to write a children's book about that. Make sure that there's a market for that first. And that's an absurd example, and there's probably no such thing as a carbon engine from the 14th century. But just make sure if you can, that what you want to write dovetails somehow with what you think A, will sell in the marketplace and B, will ultimately be enjoyed and advocated for by the, by the great decider who is the consumer, who is the child reading the book. I have so many more questions for you, but I'm, I'm watching the clock here and I know we're coming toward the end of our time, tragically. Um, but I do want to make sure I've got a fiction workshop here at the Indiana Writers Center. Yeah. Uh, student students right now uh, will be offering another workshop soon. So if you're in the Indiana area, nice. uh, head to the IndianaWritersCenter.com or go to MiddleGradeNinja.com and, and, and sign up for future classes. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got one coming up here, March 3rd, March 10th. Shameless ad, but the reason I bring that up <laughs> uh, is because I've started outsourcing some of these questions. I mean, you know what would be great is if I got the people who watch and listen to the show to tell me what they want me to ask the Tommy Greenwald. Yeah. Um, so this is, these are a couple of questions that I uh, pulled from the contenders uh, is the name yeah. of the workshop. Uh, and they want to know uh, that your website says you historically enjoyed grown up in uh, parentheses fiction, such as Catch-22, Letting Go, The Magus, and so on. Uh, do you find it challenging to write for a young audience, given that that is your preferred literature? And do you read um, uh, middle grade books for you read middle grade books for fun, too, as well, don't you? Yes, I do. Um, I read the, for fun is a strong word. I enjoy them and think they're fun. But would I read them if I wasn't writing it? Maybe here and there, especially I have a couple of friends who are writers. I would I would read their books. Uh, I love that. Gosh, my website. I wonder if my I'm, my website isn't a complete embarrassment, by the way. I used to have one, and then I got revamped, and I'm not even sure what's on there now. But speaking of social media footprints, I should look into that. That's uh, TommyGreenwald.com. <laughs> it is TommyGreenwald.com. Well, we're advertising it. <laughs> I will say that I think my bio, my the last line of my bio on Amazon or various places is for woefully outdated information about Tommy, please visit TommyGreenwald.com because 
that does about sum up what's on there. Um, but I will say um, it's never, you know, people have said, are you going to write an adult novel? And do you want to write an adult novel? And my answer is maybe, but I first wrote my first book kind of for and, and about my kids. And it was a natural fit for me to write stories in the voice of, of 11 and 12 year old kids. And it feels completely separate from the fact that I read and have enjoyed uh, adult novels and still probably, if I were to pick up one for a purely entertainment, it would be an adult novel. Uh, I think there is a way to absorb the writing of novels written for adults that you can incorporate into how you attack novels written for children with, the, with pacing and for me, um, dialogue is very important. I tend to prefer books with a lot of dialogue, adult books or kid books, because I think as a reader, I'm more interested in eavesdropping on conversations than I am listening to the ruminations of the either the narrator or the novelist. And it feels more, like a more natural way to, to be told a story. Um, so I haven't found it, I haven't found it challenging to separate my interest in adult novels for writing children's novel. But I have, I have found it a little, I have found it helpful. And any, I think any reading, every writer will say this and every student has been told this, but it doesn't matter what you read. If you, if you want to write, you have to read all sorts of different kinds of things because there will be stylistic tips and things through osmosis that you pick up without even realizing it. The more you read, the better you'll write. That's a that's an old cliche, but it's a it's a, it's a cliche for a reason. It's really true. Chuckling about a critique partner of mine who I won't name, uh, but he was struggling with uh, one of the romantic element subplots in, in his adventure book. Yeah, uh, and I said to him, "Gosh, if there was only some." ginormous genre completely devoted to the issues that you're having <laughs> so you could go out and check that that might be helpful that could be helpful <laughs> you know could be there you never know uh, another question from the contenders on the back of that one uh, do you find yourself uh, having to edit or revise down for a younger voice uh, and what uh, tips do you have that uh, writers can employ to go and do likewise to do what, what was the last thing you said uh, what what tips do you have so that we can also make sure that we're writing um, age-appropriate prose? Oh, I see. Uh, it's a good question. I I always do when I'm when I'm rewriting something I've written. I make sure I do a vocabulary check, and I will say that you know anything you do, you get better at as you do it. You know, it could be cello, it could be basketball, it could be tap dance. So. I think my ability to, to voice my characters in an age appropriate way has gotten a lot better over time. I still love Charlie Joe Jackson's guide to not reading as much as any of my books. It's the book that got me published. But if I go back and look at it now, I think there's writing in it that I wouldn't do today because there's some vocabulary that there's some turns of phrases. There's some word choices that just don't feel quite realistic to me and don't really pass the smell test for how a 11 or 12 year old kid would write. And I'm much more vigilant about that now. I really try to make sure that everything in my books and everything in my 
in the dialogue scenes that I write in the lunch table conversations um, passes that smell test. Um, I will say in Project Z, I cheat a little bit because one characteristic of these zombies is that they have, they're very, very smart and they have big vocabularies. So a running joke in, the, in that book is that Arnold, who's, who's the main character, is using vocabulary words that nobody else in this peer group can understand. And it, that's kind of a, a little my little way of, of tweaking and, and kind of making, making fun of that of that aspect of children's books because I've, I've read children's books, um, lauded children's books who, which have vocabularies that I'm just not quite sure. I'm like, this doesn't feel natural to me about how, if it's a first person book, I'm not completely convinced that I'm listening to how a 12 year old would tell you something. And I think that's something with, with, that, that exists every every novelist struggles with that because there are certain times where a word would help you tell that story and you can't use that word because it's just not age appropriate and you have to find another way in and that's something that i've become much more aware of as i've written more books so when you scan for that do you have like a, a program that you use to scan your manuscript no. you... oh, just cool. up there that's the Years program. of being the Tommy Greenwald have formed a uh, indispensable supercomputer. I could probably like thumb through Charlie Joe Jackson's Guide to Not Reading in like two seconds and find a sentence, like you know, like the word "constantly," you know, and a little sister of the host constantly coming in and out, supposedly to see if the chip bowl needs refilling, to make sure that nobody had overdosed on potato chips and was projectile vomiting on the couch. So I'm like. Half those words, I'm not sure I would I would write today because I'm not sure that the 12 year old boy would really say that. So, but I didn't know what I was doing when I wrote Charlie Joe Jackson's Guide to Not Reading. I got lucky that people seemed to like it anyway. You know, it panned out. <laughs> it, did, it did pan out, but I look at it now and say to myself, you know, my editor. I remember having conversations with my editor um, early on too about it, and she she was. You know, as most say, that you want the vocabulary to be a little aspirational and you want words in there that they might not understand so they'll ask their teacher or their parent or look it up, which I totally get. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a few aspirational vocabulary words in there. Um, but some of the writing, just when I read it, it feels like a 45-year-old guy trying to be funny rather than a... 12 year old boy telling the story. And so that I've tried to wean myself away from over the years. Yeah, it's something that I find coming up in, in workshops repeatedly. Like, you know, a character that's a modern teenager who can't wait to watch Clueless. Like, oh, oh, yeah, no, that's a modern teenager. That's not somebody that grew up in the 90s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, i tell you what, there are a bunch more questions from the contenders. I'm going to limit it to one because I think we've covered most of the others through our conversation. Okay. And okay. Uh, yeah, they can get their own podcast. Yeah, uh, and absolutely. Then, uh, so one question from them and then one from me, and we'll call it a day. Yeah. Uh, 
the question from the contenders is why I'm going to read this exact so I make sure I get it correct. Yeah. Uh, why write? Why not plumbing, engineering, medical or law school, real estate, etc.? What's storytelling about? What's the itch writing scratches where other careers don't? Being a writer is such a brutal occupation, yet so many people are drawn to the craft. Are we all insane? Why do you do it, Tommy Greenwald? Yes, we all are insane. Uh, it's the sh- <laughs> End well, of podcast. There we go. I probably <laughs> would plumb. Um, there's a lot of things out, out there that you don't want me anywhere near. So I do, you know, stay in your lane is kind of a funny but getting overused expression. But there are so many things that I'm not good at that once I work my way around the things that I could do a little bit, um, I decide to stick with it. And, you know, if you're going to be a writer like myself, I've, I've had a day job during my entire novel writing career. I still have it. I, I do it. Le- I'm more part time on my day job than I used to be. Uh, but there are the very few among us who can turn themselves over completely to their writing lives and support themselves and support their family. So I approached it originally as a fun hobby I was picking up, you know, like somebody else might golf or somebody else might join the community band. Uh, and then as the, as the books started to happen and I started to get lucky and get contracts, I realized that I, I had this calling to entertain children, get kids to read who might otherwise not want to read. As the email started coming in from kids, the most rewarding ones were those ones that said, I didn't think I liked reading, but I read your Charlie Joe book. And then I read the others and grateful parents who would tell me that their kids didn't read until they read Charlie Joe or crime biters. And that's when I realized it was more than just a lark or more than just a hobby. It was, it was, there was something important is too is, is way too pretentious a word. But there was something incredibly rewarding in the fact that something I was enjoying doing and and getting a kick out of doing just for fun was having a uh, lasting effect on some of these kids out there and was actually getting kids to read who might otherwise not read. And the, uh, the act of reading and the act of kids learning how books can be allies in terms of being entertained and also being informed and being better educated and bettering themselves. If I put that all together, it became, it became a no brainer that I would continue to write. It became just as it became more of a a job, which it has over the years. It's it's not as much of a lark as it was at first because I have deadlines and I have books I have to write. And sometimes the stories might be not becoming as easy as they, as, as I'd hoped it becomes a responsibility. And part of that responsibility is knowing that there are kids out there who are going to be entertained and hopefully in some tiny way changed by the fact that they read my books. And, and that, that fact is enough for me to to keep going. I think important is exactly the word for that. Maybe it's not a cure for cancer, but it's definitely important. (laughs) But I would, wouldn't I? I have the same madness you do. <laughs> there you do. There you do. 
Well, a question uh, from me, and, and, and we'll end on this. What is the one bit of advice that you wish uh, someone had given to you when you were starting and that you'd like to impart to the uh, writers out there watching and listening? Well, the one thing I, I you and I talked about uh, before this started, um, and I think we might even have talked about it when you interviewed me way back when, is uh, the idea of kind of setting a, a a regiment or a routine for yourself and trying to write every day and trying to hit a word count and trying to treat it quote unquote like a job. And there were a lot of people out there who, who actually told me, don't worry about word camp. You know, you're just, you're going to feel the time is right to write. And there are interviews with a lot of writers who say I, I'm, I'm, only happy when I'm writing and I'm only I'm, I'm born to sit at my desk and write and all that is great but there are a lot of us out there myself included for whom writing while incredibly rewarding as we just talked about is is a, is a real discipline and it's a, it's a challenging discipline and it's an easy discipline to lose sight of and lose lose your way around um, and so I've I decided early on, not through other people telling me, but through myself, that I was going to make my writing process um, not scientific, but almost mathematical. I was going to sit down. I was going to figure out a way to get 500 words written in an hour and a half, and then I would either take a break or I would go to work and I would come home or on the way home because I did some writing on the train early on because I would take a train in and out of work. I would write another 500 and make it a thousand for that day. And it's not like I would write the thousandth word and it was in the middle of the sentence and I would stop. I mean, I'm not that crazy, but I would, if I'd written a thousand and ten words and I could have kept going and I, but it was in the middle of the scene, I would stop. I would, but I was tired. I would stop. I would, I, it helped me to be incredibly goal-oriented and regimented in my writing. And early on, I just remember hearing from most writers that writing was like breathing to them because they loved doing it so much. And since then, I've learned that writing is like breathing for some but it's like real hard work for others. And there are, there are a lot of writers out there, of course, who have, who have said the same thing that I'm saying, that they have to treat it like a discipline and they have to treat it like a job or else they won't get anything done. But early on, I was hearing more of the opposite, more that it was just um, a flow of inspiration that was going through you. And it, it wasn't like that for me. It's so... I would say it took me some time to realize that it was okay to approach writing as a, as a kind of an unromantic kind of active discipline. And if I'd known that right from the beginning, it might've been an easier process to, to get to that point. 
I'm just thinking that if writing is like breathing, why am I able to ignore it for an entire day while I play Red Dead Redemption 2? <laughs> I can't do that with breathing. <laughs> Procrastinating is like breathing. Yes, that is very true. <laughs> Tommy Greenwald, where can esteemed audience find you online at TommyGreenwald.com? And I assume that you occasionally tweet. I am very, very, I, I have a Twitter, follow, I have Facebook, I have Twitter, very occasional, both those things. My website is almost an embarrassment. Uh, you can see links to my books and stuff like that, but I haven't blogged in a darn long time. I was I was blogging more actively early on, and I've let that slip by the wayside. But I am in all the usual places, and if any of your listeners have any more questions that, that we didn't get to, they can email me. Uh, my, my email is on my website. It's, to, it's very simple, tommy at tommygreenwald.com. So... I'm happy to happy to continue this conversation laptop to laptop uh, and uh, and uh, that's that's about it. That is an unprecedented level of access. I hope that uh, all these writers are going to take advantage of it and that you just get a uh, an avalanche of emails dear the Tommy Greenwald Bring please help me. Bring them on. Uh, and as always, you can find uh, more about me at middlegradeninja.com. Read Tommy facing the original seven questions, as well as my reviews of at least two of the Charlie Joe Jackson books, uh, all at middlegradeninja.com. Make sure you're back here come March uh, for Jennifer March Soloway and some other uh, guests that I mentioned earlier. Make sure you download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Like, subscribe, all that good stuff. Uh, Tommy, will you sign us off? Our sign-off phrase is hiya and what have you. Hiya and what have you.